Welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on books about place at ryanmurdoch.com. The Pyrenees form one of the great European landscapes. They've been a passage for refugees, dissidents, and resistance fighters, and the cradle of religious heresy and religious pilgrimage. They're all too often overshadowed by the Alps, but as you'll hear in today's podcast, they have their own very different set of stories to tell. Matthew Carr joins me to talk about medieval troubadours, Cathar castles, and Second World War escape routes from Nazi-occupied Europe. I've got a small favor to ask you before we jump in. If you like personal landscapes, please subscribe, post a review, and share it with a friend. And if you'd like the podcast to continue, please consider making a small donation through the link you'll find on every show notes blog. All the costs come out of my very shallow pockets, and all episodes are researched and recorded in my free time. Now that's enough from me. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Matthew Carr about the landscapes of the imagination that shape the way we think about Europe's savage frontier. So let's start with geography. For those who don't know, uh, where are the Pyrenees and how do they differ physically from the Alps and from other European mountain chains? The the, the most distinctive difference between the Pyrenees, well, the Pyrenees um, are located precisely on the border between France and Spain in the narrow part. So they're about 270 miles long and about 80 miles wide at the widest point. A very unusual um, situation for a mountain range to be in and i guess the main difference is that that is a that is a distinct difference between them and the alps and any other european mountain range and also the fact that they're not that high if you compare them with the alps the average height of the pyrenees is about three thousand meters it's much higher in the alps so you don't it's not a mountain range famous for iconic peaks to be climbed um it's fame it's it's known for other things and in many ways it's been unknown for those things because for many years the Pyrenees was a kind of um was like the little brother of the Alps if you like the unknown brother the stepbrother let's call it that yeah you said that they also there are also differences in perception like the Alps enjoyed a different reputation in the eyes of the outside world as sort of a daunting and nevertheless essential destination something that had to be crossed with great discomfort on the way to the classical world of of Italy that people wanted to see on the Grand Tour the Alps is a, has been a kind of um physical barrier between countries what makes the Pyrenees distinct is they're ima- they've been imagined for many years as a boundary between civilizations. Um, this is quite distinctive, you know. So it's not just a question of going to another country. Yes, the Pyrenees have have had the position of being the physical barrier between France and Spain, although that's relatively recent historically. But for a long time, um, the way the Pyrenees was imagined was in, bound up in the way that Spain was imagined. And given that you know the the stereotypical view for many centuries that Spain was where Africa began, you had this idea that when you crossed the Pyrenees, you didn't just enter Spain, you entered Africa. And this is this is you know part of the uh, reputation the Pyrenees has as this kind of civilizational wall, this mysterious gateway through which the European goes through these um, passes or through the the lower parts of the Pyrenees on the eastern western side, and then they enter. Not just another country, but a whole new world, an African world, or what has often been imagined as an Arab, Moorish world. So these are things that you don't get, really, with any other European mountain range. Does that impression predate the Islamic conquest of Spain, or did, did that come about because of it? 
it came out because of it, really. What were the views before that, do you know? The Pyrenees before that was really just, they were really, the Pyrenees were not a central boundary. Um, roughly speaking, you could say that the Pyrenees marked the boundaries of Roman, it was a provincial boundary between um, Roman Spain, Roman Iberia, and the rest of the Roman Empire. But it didn't have the same connotations. It kind of acquired them and was given them really precisely as a result of the Moorish uh, invasion and conquest of Spain that took place in the 8th century. And the way these things were imagined afterwards, the way that Spain was imagined in Christendom as a kind of Islamicized space. You know, this is this is a, a result of history, not geography or geology, although geology has often been sort of um, brought into the imaginary of the Pyrenees. You know, the fact that um, the Pyrenees, when you see them, when you approach them from the French side, from a distance, they seem to be a great wall um, in the distance. And this has certain imaginative connotations. I mean, one of the things that fascinated me about the Pyrenees from the very beginning was in terms of, you know, looking at the way human beings imagine landscape and kind of um, give it specific connotations. You have you have a test case of that with the Pyrenees. You know, it's been given all these qualities that when you kind of go deeper into the mountains themselves, uh, it doesn't actually have them. You know, the, the Pyrenees is actually a delightful place. Um, but for centuries, it was not imagined like that. It was not imagined as a place of delight. It was imagined as the formidable barrier that um, you had to cross. That also you had to cross to enter another civilization, which also protected Christian Europe from the invaders further south. You know, um, there were a lot of um, it was quite common for many year, many centuries to, to say that you know the reasons the um, Moors did not continue their invasion and push further north was because of the pyramids, you know, so this was kind of accepted for a while. So you've described it as a landscape that oscillates easily between the savage and the pastoral, and you kind of hinted at the savage there with these this formidable barrier you see on the French side, but the, the Spanish side is quite different mm -hmm. from that. So how, what did you mean by this, this landscape that oscillates between the savage and the pastoral? Given that, you know, the way that um, Christian Europe and and the successors to Christian Europe imagined Spain for many years as an Africanized, Islamicized space. You already have this idea that this, this is a, a savage civilization, an African civilization that's different from what lies north. So you already have those kind of assumptions. And then, you know, you, you can, for those that wanted to look, you could see them even in the geography. For example, on the Spanish side of the Pyrenees, the vegetation tends to be sparser. Um, the sun hits the Pyrenees more directly. So, you know, this isn't, I, I can't say this is universal, but this is what many people have said and believe. So if you're looking at the imaginative construction of the Pyrenees, it's about how people um, looked for geography, weather, geology to support their belief that this was a kind of civilizational barrier. So yes, on the Spanish side, you can find some kind of, um, it's drier, it seems harsher, the vegetation can be the kind of vegetation that sort of scratches at your at your legs as you walk through it. But then that's not the only side of the, of the Spanish side, you know, because you've got variations from east to west. Nevertheless, people who wanted to make that point that here begins a new a new world, a new civilization, have often stressed these particular features that you're more likely to find, say, in the Catalan Pyrenees, closer to the Mediterranean. So, you know, in terms, so these, these are kind of classical kind of, um, these are ways in which the idea of a uh, savage space seems to be supported by the idea of a savage, um, mountain landscape that's kind of dangerous 
for for people to cross. That's interesting. This it's almost as though they were um are are they projecting their own interpretations onto it or is this well, is it this savage landscape that brings out the spirit of place, you know? That's our, that whole idea of Durrell's Lawrence Durrell's that uh certain types of landscape will always be expressive of a certain character. It seems that with the Pyrenees it's the other way around, totally. right? It's it's a kind of two-way process, really, isn't it? I mean, you know, deserts are imagined in certain ways. You know, if you have a desert located in a particular place, you can give it certain associations as a dead, empty place and so on. But, I mean, people always bring their own perceptions to a landscape. And because, you know, the... Um, the Pyrenees, the Pyrenees were so so closely bound up with historical movements and cultural movements over the centuries. It lent its the mountains lent themselves very easily to the things that people were bringing to them. You know, for example, I mean, the whole idea of mountains as places of horror, um, the idea that mountains were to be feared, and the transition that took place more or less from the sort of 18th century onwards, in which um, partly as an as a kind of consequence of romanticism um mountains were imagined as places where you could experience kind of elevated emotions um the concept of the sublime all these things were brought specifically to the alps more to the alps than the pyrenees but people also went to the pyrenees in search of them so once again you have an i i guess you could also say that in many ways the ways of mountains are often creations of outsiders we actually the people who kind of um the early travelers, the writers who first developed this idea that mountains were places of fascination and delight, brought these beliefs with them from cities. So they were outsiders coming to mountains, you know, with preconceptions, with desires, with things they wanted to see, with emotions they wanted to feel. So in a way, this kind of always takes place. But with mountains, you have this particular thing that emerges more or less in the 18th century, um, in which all mountains are imagined this way, and the Pyrenees happen to be one of them. So what was your first experience of this region? My first experience of the Pyrenees, I when I lived in Barcelona in the in the 1990s, I used to go I used to go there for weekends sometimes and I used to camp and walk in them and I I loved being in them you know because they were very near to Barcelona. They're one of the attractions of Barcelona is that you can be um you're an hour from the sea and you're only about 2 hours from the Pyrenees. So I used to go to kind of easily accessible places, but I didn't really drive then. And I had a car, but I mean, I shared it. It was a bit of a wreck, you know, so it was better to go by train. So I used to go to places like the Val de Nuria, which you can, you can reach by train and then by funicular. So you can do that over a weekend. And sometimes I would extend that for a longer stay. I really loved being in the mountains, you know, because I, I hadn't been in mountains for a while when I was doing that. And then I kind of rediscovered the Pyrenees. In around um, 2013, 2014, when I started to write a, a novel set in 16th century Spain, which I decided to set in Aragon, in the Aragonese Pyrenees. And while I was there, you know, looking at places, looking at some um, old medieval cities and villages and so on, it struck me that what I should be looking at in the Pyrenees isn't just the landscape, it's the history. Um, and it just was full of it. You know, because I had not long before that, I'd written a book about European borders and um, and migrants and migration. So I was fascinated with this idea of the contradiction between a border, the way we imagine a border as a kind of firm division between one thing and another, and the actual borderland around the border, which is so full of different kinds of influences. And I, I'm really interested in that because, you know, I feel that the whole idea of a borderland challenges 
this uh, this obsession with borders, the political obsession with borders that we now have in the tw- early 21st century, which we like to imagine that such and such a place, the English Channel, the Pyrenees, the Rio Grande, is, is a firm barrier between one thing and another. And mostly, if you look back at the history, you find these constant interactions, cultural flows, movements of people and ideas. In the Pyrenees, it's a thought, well, has anybody written about this, I thought? And then I looked into it. No one really has. You know, the last time, the last kind of book kind of even approaching that was by Sabine Gold in the 19th century. So it's a long time ago, you know. And most books that I did read about the Pyrenees might talk about some specific element of French or Spanish history and the mountains might feature in it. But there was no sign of book written about the mountains and all these things we've just been talking about, you know, cultural landscapes, how you imagine landscapes and so on. And so I thought, well, why not try that? You know, and, I, and also, you know, it was a pleasure, an absolute pleasure, um, because it gave me the opportunity to be in those mountains and to walk in them as much as possible and to look at them through other people's eyes. You know, I never saw the Pyrenees just as a magnificent landscape from that point on. I was always thinking, well, how did soldiers see them? How did um, refugees crossing from one side or the other see them? You know, and I, I would try and pick out these routes that they had taken. You know, and try and draw up this picture, not just of the mountains themselves, the physicality of them, but how people saw them. So it was an absolute delight for me. I loved doing it. Probably the most pleasurable book I've ever written, actually. Speaking of borders, too, it surprised me that um, the border wasn't formally agreed to until, what, 1659, the Treaty of the Pyrenees. The Treaty of the Pyrenees, although really, the um, even then, this is another aspect of borders, that people people like to imagine borders as a line, you know, like... Um, for for some time after the collapse of the Roman Empire, the Pyrenees were seen as part of the Spanish march. You know, um, they were they were seen as a border between um, they were seen as a border between Moorish Spain and Christian Europe. But the border, the Spanish march was actually much wider than the Pyrenees. The Spanish march actually reaches into Spain, and it also reaches into what was then Gaul. And yet, people thought of the Pyrenees as the physical line, you know. So with the Treaty of the Pyrenees in 1659, is the first attempt to actually say, okay, well, this is actually a border, and this is where it starts, and this is where it ends. But even then, you have to wait till about 1866 before the firm line, what where the border, where France begins and where Spain begins, is actually defined. And this is done in the way that borders are usually done you know, by working out a line that goes, say, through such and such a person's house or dissects part of their farm from the other part of the farm. And you have engineers and surveyors and so on, basically following the line. This is, you know, this, you get the same thing, say, in um, in the Andes, in the division between Chile and Argentina. You know, you um, people think, oh, well, Argentina is one side of the Andes and Chile is the other. But it took a long time for both those countries to agree where exactly the limits were. So that same process goes on in the Pyrenees too. It's a, the other thing that surprised me about that too, you write that even by the late 1700s, few maps of the mountains existed. And beyond the main passes and crossing points, it was much of it was terra incognita. Mountain ranges are often imagined from the outside. It takes time. And that time really was sort of, I don't know, late 18th century, following right through to the 19th. For people actually have to not just think of you know, the Pyrenees or the Alps or the Andes, but to actually walk in those places and give names to all the valleys and peaks and, and measure their heights and stuff like that. This kind of corresponds with you, not just the kind of um, 
the romantic imagination of mountains, but the point in which scientists are beginning to put the features of mountains onto maps. So I, I'm not sure if the Pyrenees is that much out of step with other mountains, but I think you had a similar process in other countries as well. But it's certainly true that, yes, from really the late 18th century, specifically in the 19th century, you have people, uh, mostly amateurs, actually, because a lot of scientists were amateurs there, and they could be anybody from monks to, I don't know, walkers, counts, um, people just kind of going off, you know, finding places, naming them, gradually putting them on maps, often in a very artistic way. You get the maps of Franz Schrader, you know, these beautiful maps, which are almost like kind of artistic um, creations in themselves, because Schrader always saw surveying and art as two interlinked activities. You know, that's one of the reasons why he loved the Pyrenees so much. They say that he just went there to, from Bordeaux to visit a friend, Schrader, and he looked out the window one morning and saw the Pyrenees and kind of never really left them. Um, philosophically and intellectually speaking, you know, his, his whole life was spent um, mapping them and returning to them. Yes, there's so many interesting characters associated with this with this place, and as it's your your description of it as um, landscapes of the imagination, making up the, pic the total picture of this place really intrigues me. So, and I want to try to bring out a few of those. It's one of the earliest landscapes of the imagination uh, comes to us from the troubadours. The uh, Pyrenees as a sacred battlefield between you know Christian virtue and and the heathen Saracens. So, what role did the Song of Roland play in all this? Um, it played an interesting role because um, the Song of Roland was um, a kind of epic poem, an oral poem. Full manuscript wasn't actually discovered, if I remember correctly, till the nineteenth century. But you know, it was a poem that was had parts added to it and was kind of refined, developed by various troubadours, poets. Um, for centuries, and it reaches back into a kind of military expedition led by Charlemagne, in which he hoped to kind of um, conquer Moorish Spain, beginning in Zaragoza. So he sent his armies um, two directions towards Zaragoza, and the whole thing fell apart. It fell apart particularly when he was summoned back um, to deal with the Saxon rebellion in his own country. So um, his soldiers went back through the Pyrenees, and on the way, um, they were attacked by Basques. One of his columns was attacked by Basques, and one of the one of the, um, lead, the leaders of that expedition was the knight Roland, and the bishop Turpin were, were part of it. And the interesting thing about this is this classic kind of imaginary stuff, really, because the reason the Basques attacked them was because they had attacked Pamplona on their way to Zaragoza and kind of and, and sacked it. So the Basques were taking revenge, but in the poem there are no Basques. There are only Saracens, lots of Saracens, um, 400,000, the poem says, which is kind of insane figure, you know, because I doubt, I doubt if anybody could have um, put together an army that large at that time. You know, so everything about it is false, except the fact that some fighting took place somewhere in some mountain passes in the Pyrenees. So what emerges out of that is this idea of Roland, you know, the great Saracen killer. And in the poem, it's almost like when you look when you read that poem, it's like reading some kind of gory comic book in a way. Because when these crusaders, because they were called that, kill Saracens, they don't just kill them. The sword goes through the helmet, through the head, the whole body, then the body of the horse. And not only that, they do it multiple times. Roland using his kind of magical, mystical sword. Anyway, they're defeated. The Christians are defeated, and then this is, becomes a heroic act of martyrdom that is retold again and again. And the thing is, the Pyrenees feature in it, not 
massively. You know, there aren't many descriptions of the landscape, but there are some. And the descriptions are about rugged defiles, the kind of things that people later would think of as the Pyrenees, harsh, savage, um, harsh defiles, in which these Saracens pour down and slaughter, um, eventually slaughter Roland's columns. So then you have the um, pilgrimage to Santiago, um, which was developed later on um, in the early Middle Ages, which picks up on some of this, and Roland becomes part of it. So there are certain places that you visit as a pilgrim where there are relics of Roland in such and such a church. And so through this kind of mythical poem, totally mythical poem, you have the Pyrenees kind of entering um, Christian consciousness as this landscape of battle, um, and the confrontation, the cosmic confrontation between Christian good and Saracen evil and so on. So it's difficult to separate the way people imagine the Pyrenees from these kind of imaginative processes. So how far back does that go, that tradition of pilgrimage in this region? The, the, the pilgrimage um, to Santiago begins more or less, starts to begin in the late ninth century, if I remember correctly. And I say if I remember correctly, because bear in mind, I wrote this book a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And when you're writing a book, you're absolutely au fait with all the names and all the dates. But, you know, mm-hmm. they can get a bit rusty over, over time. But um, they were the pilgrimage... The, the, pilgr- the, the importance of the Pyrenees in the pilgrimage was that um, this was the place where people really felt they were leaving. Um, they were leaving the security of Christian Europe and entering a more ambiguous place, a place that was Christian because they were going to Santiago, um, um, Santiago de Compostela. But the first sight of it really was from the high passes of the Pyrenees. And this was the first major obstacle. Bearing in mind, I don't know, the, the whole of the pilgrimage was to some extent an obstacle for, say, poor people leaving home and walking all the way to Santiago de Compostela. But to see a mountain range like the Pyrenees, many of them would never have seen it until they got there. So this was a place where they would encounter the um, Basques, um, the people of Navarre, who um, the guidebook, the famous Christian guidebook to the pilgrimage, describes the Basques and that and um, the people of Navarre as being shysters, murderers. It actually is quite incredibly damning, the language that that guidebook uses to describe them. It says things like, beware of the boatmen when you go through the Pyrenees because they will um, charge you to cross a ferry and they'll kill you and steal your clothes and take the money and so on and so forth. So, you know, this is, a, so this is another kind of... Um, transmission belt, if you like, by which the Pyrenees began to kind of, the, the idea of the pyramids of the um, Pyrenees moved north. You talk about the the mountains being like a, a natural geographical barrier and a barrier in people's minds, but it had always been, there'd always been these sorts of exchanges like this, mm-hmm. these cultural, it acted as a culture, a bridge or a funnel. So you have these p- pilgrims funneling through on their, on their way to the, uh, Shrine at uh, Santiago de Compostela, and you also had scholars making their way to Spain in search of books and manuscripts that that weren't available in uh, other parts of Europe. This is this was a process that begins in the kind of um, early Middle Ages, corresponding more or less with the with the Crusades and the decline of um, of Arab political power in Spain. So you have these um, you ha- the, the the Pyrenees features in these exchanges in which you have. Um, European scholars, translators, and so on, going south, crossing the Pyrenees in search of knowledge, um, classical knowledge that had been lost 
the Christian Europe, and that was being rediscovered as you know Greek and uh, Latin manuscripts and Arabic manus- Arabic translations of these manuscripts were making their way to Spain. So you have um, this constant process, I mean, of movement back and forth, movement of ideas back and forth. Um, Once again, going back to what I was saying before about borders and borderlands, despite this image of the Pyrenees, the formidable um, barrier between civilizations, it was also a place of civilizational encounters through these kind of transmissions. Not everybody went to um, to Spain by crossing the Pyrenees. Some went by ship. Nevertheless, the Pyrenees was a pretty standard route, really, for most of them. Um, most of these scholars, people like Adelard of Bath and so on, these are the routes they would have taken. And you also have this um, unusual phenomenon. It's not You can't exactly call it a voluntary cultural exchange. In the 11th century, there was um, a mini crusade at the town of Barbastro in Aragon. Um, it's kind of rather nondescript place now, Barbastros, Barbastro. But this um, crusade... One of the consequences of it were that these Norman knights took back a load of slave girls that they captured as as kind of war booty from that siege. And they took them back to the south of France. And there is a theory, a literary theory, um, put forward by Maria Rosa Menacal, the late scholar, the late Hispanophile scholar, and others, which says that the troubadour, the art troubadour poetry originated in that exchange. Of course, this is not something anybody can really prove. Um, Rosa Maria Menacal, she talks about some um, certain similarities between Arab poetry and and troubadour poetry. And she suggests that these kian, these the way that the kian were were seen by these Norman knights, they became kind of had this sort of coquettish, what we might call a geisha-like role in southern courts in France. Somehow, were part of this transmission of ideas. So. You know, these are things that you can't kind of um, kind of put in a list, a solid list, and say, yes, this happened at such a time, and we can prove how this idea got from here to there. Nevertheless, it's certainly a very suggestive interpretation of how um, of some of the kind of lesser known movements of ideas and cultural flows across those mountains. And the fact that this one began with an act of violence, um, a siege, and then turn into something else, into troubadour poetry. It's a very interesting thing to to imagine. One of the stories that I found most interesting, or one of the elements of uh, of this barrier I found most interesting, is how the Pyrenees acted as an escape route from state violence. So during the Second World War, for example, the frontier was one of the main escape routes out of occupied France. I think um, this whole question of um, refuge and the... Um, the idea of the Pyrenees as a gateway to safety is a really interesting question because it touches on the different relationships and the changing politics in both states over hundreds of years. So, you know, you have, um, going back to the Middle Ages, you have Jews fleeing persecution in Northern Europe and try and, and seeking sanctuary in Spain. And then at other times, you have people going from Spain seeking sanctuary in on the other side of the Pyrenees. In either case, to get to that, sanct- that safety, you have to cross these mountains. The easy places to cross the Pyrenees are obviously going to be the most guarded and the most dangerous to cross at the, at the, at the far west and the far east in the Basque, in the Basque country and also in Catalonia. So that forces people to take, um, more difficult routes. So by the time you get to, you get to, um, World War II, you have, um, a situation in which people are fleeing, um, Nazi occupation, firstly. So after the after the Nazi invasion of France in 1940, you have people initially coming to the Catalan 
um, side of the Pyrenees and, and find it relatively easy to get into Spain. And then from Spain, they would they would basically make it to Barcelona or Madrid, and their embassies would would or friendly embassies would help them go to South America, or they would go to Lisbon and they would get a ship to South America or America. So, in some cases, these are intellectuals, writers, Jews, um, people who basically literally face death um, at the worst and imprisonment at the least. And then you know you have um, once the actual war gets started properly when the phony war is over and so on after the French after the Nazi invasion of France you have allied um, servicemen trying to get to Spain from France and they're helped by these so-called escape lines which would reach all the way from Belgium or Paris say and you know would have a series of people of individuals who would help um, these airmen get across the Pyrenees and you know some cases some people crossed um, like two or three times even you know because they were if they were shot down they would get into Spain, make their way back to Britain, get in a plane, and get shot down again, across the Pyrenees again. This is how it sometimes went. And um, some of these um, crossings were just incredible to imagine. I mean, one of the most famous is the one by Chuck Yeager. Yeah, that's who, um, I didn't know that. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, he was the guy with the right stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, That's right. So Chuck, Chuck Yeager, he was shot down with um, a member of his crew who was who he, they, the two of them crossed together. Um, by themselves, as it happened. This is the thing, you didn't always have an escape line. Sometimes you just had a little map that was on, put on a handkerchief, um, a kind of uh, silk map that pilots w- would use. God knows how they managed it, but they did manage it. And they would use these silk maps to get across the Pyrenees. So Jaeger and his companion, his companion was shot in the mountains in a confrontation with Alpine troops. So Jaeger carried him, wounded, then cut off his leg, prevent infection. And then when getting into Spain, rolled him off the edge of a very steep slope so that he would just land in a road in Spain, hoping that he would be picked up by the civil guard or whoever and saved. And he was. Both of them lived through the war. Jaeger continued his journey. He got back to the States, flew again. This guy didn't fly His companion didn't fly again, but he did survive. He survived the war. So, you know, when you walked in those mountains, the idea of carrying somebody with troops hunting for you is not something you can easily imagine, you know. And um, the Pyrenees are full, the, that period of the Pyrenean history of World War II is full of journeys like that, often incredibly tragic journeys, you know, people dying, people um, dying in the snow. You have cases in Andorra of people who were, who paid these so-called passeurs to take them across the mountains and they were murdered in the mountains. There were some horrific cases of Jews who paid money to passeurs. I mean, and then they would be killed and buried somewhere in the mountains. You know, this wouldn't be discovered until some time later. You have cases like Walter Benjamin. I was just going to say, um, he's that's quite a, yeah. st- a sad story. I mean, that is quite a story. I mean, I, I walked that route, as you, you as you know from having read the book, mm. I walked that route, and of all the routes, it wasn't, it's not an especially difficult part of the Pyrenees to cross. There's much more difficult places to cross. But when um, Benjamin made his crossing, in 1940, bearing in mind he was 48. Yeah, we'll get, he fill, fill that in for people who don't know who he was. Give us background a little bit. Walter Benjamin was not the kind of guy to be walking across the Pyrenees. You know, he was um, he was a philosopher, leftist intellectual, German, and he was living in France, and he had to make his way south, as so many other people did um, when the Germans um, invaded France. So he made his way to Marseille, where he met people like Arthur Kersler, 
and other people who were trying to get from Marseille to the States. They couldn't get on a ship um, for various reasons that are not clear. And when Kersler met him in Marseille, Kersler, uh, another thing to bear in mind in, um, about Walter Benjamin, he was a very urban character. He was associated with cities, with um, being a certain kind of intellectual flaneur, you know, walking down boulevards, what we now call psychogeography. He was a kind of early proponent of psychogeography, you know, looking at the different sort of atmospheres you can find in streets and cities and and uh, shopping arcades and so on. So the Pyrenees was not his zone at all. He was not someone to be crossing a savage frontier or any other kind of frontier. And uh, he had he would have um, ended up probably working at the New School had he actually survived this particular um, expedition. But what happened was he went to Marseille. He couldn't get on a ship. And when Kersler met him, he had a bag full of morphine pills. And um, Benjamin had very kind of carefully assessed his possibilities of survival. He told Kersler, if I don't make it, I'm going to take these. And that's that, he said. And uh, he was put in touch with um, uh, a very brave um, French pastor, uh, a German pastor actually living in France called um, Lisa Fitko, who helped people cross the Pyrenees. And by that time, the easier route had become more difficult. So Benjamin had to do a slightly more difficult route. But as I say, it's not the most difficult um, route in the Pyrenees, but it really was a very difficult route for him to take. And being Walter Benjamin, he worked out this strategy. He said that my heart will only, um, I can only avoid a heart attack. I will stop every 10 minutes. And that's what he did. He stopped every 10 minutes. And um, they went out on what Lisa Fitko thought was a rehearsal walk. Um, just to try it out. And Benjamin was so exhausted, he said, I can't go back to the town because they were going to go back to the town and then do the full walk the next day. Benjamin said, I can't do it. I'm just going to stay here because I've got, at least I've got somewhere. So he spent the night out there. And uh, when Lisa Fitko um, returned the next day with two others, two other people she was going to get across, she found him. She wasn't entirely convinced he'd be alive, actually. But he spent the night smoking and and just looking out of the mountains. I try. I think I sort of found the place where he must have been, even though there's no actual plaque commemorating it. There is a kind of commemorative route that you can take. That's the route I followed. So Benjamin continued his climb, and he finished it on all fours. He was, he was absolutely exhausted, and he encountered another group of people who had been taken across the mountains by another passeur, who said, later said, many years later, they wrote a memoir, one of them wrote a memoir saying that we met this old man, this old German professor, who looked like he was having a heart attack. But amazingly, Benjamin survived that climb. And he walked down the other side um, into, um, into the nearest town. And um, he was told by the Spanish um, officials, you can't go any further. You have to go back to France, which would have meant death, of course. He would have ended up in a concentration camp if he'd even got that far. So he took his pills and died. And the next day, the Spanish officials said, um, we'll let the rest of the party continue. So it's one of those, um, and today there's a monument um, that you can see, a, a rather wonderful monument in which you descend this kind of um, flight of stairs to, and you look down at the sea. It's a beautiful kind of image of the freedom that um, that Benjamin was not able to obtain. And, and the whole tragic story is one of those, for me, it was a kind of one of these um, things that I've seen many times when I was doing my book about European borders, in which literally um, borders can mean the line between life and death. 
And in that case, it really was for Benjamin. And um, the fact that arbitrariness of it, arbitrariness, the fact that one day he couldn't cross and the next day he could. So he crossed the physical barrier of the Pyrenees, but not the paper barrier. And um, many other people found themselves in a similar situation. And their their, um, possibilities depended on the political and military situation. For example, in the early part of the war, Franco um, basically was thinking that the Germans were going to win the war. So he was very anxious to please them. So basically, if you cross the Pyrenees into Spain, you, you really had to avoid the Spanish authorities. and Otherwise, you'd probably get locked up in a, in a camp. And you might or might not get sent back to France. But later on, um, Franco was much more susceptible to American pressure. So it was easy. Once you got across the Pyrenees, it was easier to actually continue your journey. And how was this regarded on the French side? I mean, were they trying to stop people from escaping or did they just see this as a way to get rid of, you know, people they didn't want? Well, I mean, you know that the um, during World War II, the French government was very, was basically they were collaborating with the Nazi occupation. And so you, you had Vichy authorities. Um, in Benjamin's case, one of the reasons why he couldn't go into Spain legally was because the French refused to give him an exit visa. So, in that, you know, these were the kind of paper requirements that basically meant, oh, you can't get an exit visa, you can't cross a border officially. So the French did that deliberately, the authorities did that deliberately, because they would have known that he would have been stopped in Spain and the Spain, Spanish would have said, you haven't got an exit visa, you have to go back. The, you know, the, And so um, that would not have been the only case. Um, in, the, in the case of the Pyrenees, you had French police, of course, who would arrest you trying to cross them. And you also had Austrian Alpine Corps who were specially put in the Pyrenees to um, to look for people and stop them crossing. So, yes, the French um, played a role in this, which might partly explain why the um, commemorative route um, for Walter Benjamin is much clearer on the Spanish side than it is on the French side. Um, it seems to be much more developed. When you, when you walk down the route that Walter Benjamin took, you find pictures of him, you find quotations from him on giant signs and so on. You know, so they put much more effort into it. I don't want to make too much of this, you know, because it's a complex history and so on. But yes, the French role in World War II, and also, you know, going back a little bit further, you have this huge flood of refugees after the Spanish Civil War across the Pyrenees. Um, and this took place in 1939. This was a particularly um, dismal episode in French history, which, you know, um, you had basically um, Republicans who were feared and seen by the French as potential communists and so on, basically being locked up in camps, improvised camps in the Pyrenees, which later became kind of more permanent camps in the Pyrenees and along the beaches of the southern French coast and treated as communists. Many of them died. Many of them died. It wasn't like they weren't deliberately killed by the French authorities, but the French authorities did very little to stop them dying, especially at first. And then some of these camps, these improvised camps where these people were kept, um, became permanent camps. And then so their first um, inmates were Spanish Republicans and including, you know, international brigaders who fought on the Republican side. Later, they had gypsies, Jews um, and other other people. I remember going to one in the camp of Gours, Pyrenees, um, not too far from the city of Po. And noticing how many um, people in the graveyard there were in there would have been in their 60s and 70s when they arrived at that camp. So this was, you know, Hannah Arendt spent some time at this camp. The philosopher Hannah Arendt spent some time there. And these camps, um, 
I think Arthur Kersler said, he said he basically made some comparisons saying they're not Dachau and they're not Auschwitz, but they're very far from great. Um, and in the, and in the scale of civilization, they're still pretty low, you know, and lots of people died in them, not because they were shot or beaten as they would be in Germany, but because of the conditions were so poor. So this is another side of the Pyrenean border. It was like not just a wall. It was also a place where people were imprisoned because it was seen as the place you could keep people away from the societies on either side of it. And this was also the main infiltration route for these international brigades? It was, yes, it was. In fact, that was another, um, some years ago when I lived in Barcelona, I interviewed some of the, um, uh, one of the British commander of the, um, one of the British commanders, the British Brigade, International Brigade, Bill Alexander, and a few others, veterans. And I was struck at the time by how for these people, crossing the Pyrenees was the first real test of their resolve to fight for Spain. I mean, you could, for a while, especially at the beginning of the Spanish Civil War, you could, if you wanted to fight for either the nationalist or the Republican side, you could get there by ship and even by train, you know. But once um, the non-intervention pact kicked in, you had um, the French government was very keen to stop people doing that. So the way you crossed the Pyrenees, if you wanted to fight for Republican Spain, you pretended to be a tourist um, in Paris. You, dispended, you pretended you were going to visit Paris. And then when you visited Paris, you go to the local Communist Party headquarters. They would kind of put you in touch with somebody who would take you to the south of France. You would then be kind of gathered as a group in some farmhouse somewhere, um, issued with um, a pair of espadrilles. <laughs> they didn't use boots. They used wow. espadrilles. The espadrilles were useful partly because they were quiet. They were silent. I mean, the idea now, having walked in mountains quite a lot, the idea of walking mountains in a pair of espadrilles seems like that's crazy. It's yeah. a nightmare to me. You know, because, um, because I mean, apart from anything else, they always slip off your feet. Um, nevertheless, they're apparently very good for gripping rocks, you know, and shepherds used to use them. Um, the, um, for many, many years, espadrilles is all that you, that smugglers and shepherds would wear in the Pyrenees. So these people would wear these and then they would cross the Pyrenees. And this was their first real test, which they didn't always pass. I remember Bill Alexander telling me, he said, you know, some of the comrades, as he said, were, com were seriously distressed by crossing the Pyrenees. I managed it, you know, um, because I'd done lots, he said he'd done lots of exercise in the New Forest and so on. And you read, when you, you read memoirs of the International Brigades, both American and um, British, you find these constant references to these agonizing climbs in which sometimes you'd go up the Pyrenees at night. You'd usually go at night to avoid the police and you'd arrive at Spain at dawn. So you get this kind of the, the ordeal, say, following some guide who's wearing um, white, paint, white boots, white, so that you can follow him, so you can see him, because you know, no other lights were allowed in the Pyrenees in, the, in those crossings. And some of these guys, they would do this, and there would be one guy, a steel worker, described it as being like a spavined horse, he said. The, the pain in his legs was so intense, you know. So this is the kind of standard imagery that you get in these descriptions. And then at dawn, you get this ecstatic moment when these people see the country that they come to fight and possibly die in. You know, they look down, there's Spain there, there'll be people running towards them with oranges, there'll be um, Republicans waiting with a truck to take them to Barcelona or to the um, or to the International Brigade's camp and so on. It's almost like, given the whole experience is secular, it's not specifically religious, it almost ha has the feel of a kind of religious ritual. You go through this, the mountains are part of your character test, the test of your faith. And then when you get to the top, 
you see the can't exactly call it the promised land, but it was the land that they cared about so much that they'd come to fight in. So it's very moving to read that kind of thing. And of course, when you're walking in the Pyrenees, you know, everyone work, walks there now for leisure, uh, for recreation, to get fitter because they love mountains. And yet these are the kind of journeys that came before all that. And you said that even if they did manage to pass this ordeal, sometimes they were rejected. Like Laurie Lee, wasn't he sent back? Laurie Lee was an unusual case. Typical Laurie Lee, really. He crossed the Pyrenees in winter with a violin in his rucksack. <laughs> and um, when he got there, the Republican, he did, he met some Republican, a Republican family, more by fluke than by design. The other thing is the international brigades, when they went, they had guides who put them in touch with people who were going to be waiting for them. Laurie Lee just had a go, you know, and, and so he arrived in winter. <laughs> With this Republican, he found shelter with some Republican family who basically handed him over to the authorities who could not believe that he wasn't a German spy. So they were going to shoot him, according to his book. And uh, he came very, he was, according to his own account, he was within a few days of being taken out and shot as a spy. His story isn't entirely, then he, he was fight, eventually believed, but then he was rejected on fitness grounds. Um, they thought he wasn't, I think he had asthma, if I recall. Um, not everyone believes this story, by the way. It has been um, has been disputed, but nevertheless, that's the story he told. Yeah, an unusual tale. So you mentioned that people now go to the Pyrenees um, for recreation and uh, hiking and things like this. Mm. There, there came a point where the the Pyrenees was transformed from this savage frontier into sort of a, a landscape of delights. Mm -hmm. And you describe some of the people involved in this this sort of you know, metaphorical transformation, the early Pyrenists. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us about the Baron of the Mountains? He's an interesting character. Raymond de Carbonier. Yeah, I think he's a he's a fascinating character, really. I mean, he was um, an aristocrat who was sympathetic to the French Revolution, and at the same time, not fully on board with the raw, more radical elements of it. And he had to kind of go south um, to more or less avoid ending up losing his head. Um, he's, and he kind of like, moved away from the frame and you know he spent some time um in the town of Tarbes and um, near near Po and he began to discover the Pyrenees and he discovered them in a way that many people of that period began to discover them. It was a combination of scientific interest in the mountains and the imagination of a romantic poet. So you know when you read his his famous book um, about the Pyrenees, which, which brought so many other people there. This is the other thing, you know, just to refer back to this. The whole thing of an imagined landscape is basically the creation of layers and layers of different people saying and imagining things about it. You know, the song we talked about, the Song of Roland being one of them. You know, um, probably many people who went to the Pyrenees in the 18th century would not have been aware of the significance of the Song of Roland, or the occasionally you find people that, that refer to it. So with um, Raymond, Raymond de Carbonier, when he went there, when was his first trip there? It would have been around 1799, more or less. Yeah, around that time. He he wrote this amazing book in which you, know, you get detailed descriptions of um, geology, mountains, attempts to measure heights and summits with these sort of ecstatic, poetic descriptions of the Pyrenees as some kind of utopia. You know, you'll get him one minute, he'll be talking about such and such a flower that he's discovered. Then he'll suddenly be going, and then I looked over the Campan Valley and I saw the possibility of peace on earth in, the, in those flowers and defiles and so on and so forth. 
So, you know, very romantic, very passionate engagement with mountains. And because of him, lots of people went to the Pyrenees, especially French at first. Um, and they kind of would write about the mountains the same kind of way. And another striking thing about that particular period, the early 19th century, late 18th, is that when people went to mountains, the idea that mountains were terrifying or savage places did not mean that they weren't places of delight. You have this idea, the philosophical idea of the sublime, um, defined by Edmund Burke, the philosopher Edmund Burke, that was the idea that if something is terrifying, it can also be engaging and delightful. This is the idea of the sublime, you know. Um, and so people would go to the Pyrenees as they went to the Alps and other places in search of sublime landscapes. So, you know, to walk on a precipice and know that you could die at any minute was part of the aesthetic pleasure of being in those mountains, you know. And at the same time, you had the whole idea of um, scientific endeavor as a patriotic enterprise. There's an amusing anecdote of this some um, Spanish veteran of the Napoleonic Wars who lived in Aragon, who um, liked to go in the Pyrenees. And when he went there once, he encountered about 10 or 11 French, amateur French scientists, botanists who were going around you know, naming and measuring things. And they said to him, why is it only the French people that write books about the Pyrenees um, when this is, these mountains should be here for the glory of the fatherland? And yet the Spanish don't bother, he said. And so this guy was so embarrassed by this, he went back and wrote his own book about the Pyrenees. And it kind of bore out what the French were saying because it wasn't published until this century. Wow. <laughs> Even though he wrote it, he must have written it around 1830. So, you know, with Raymond, he's not the only one. He's the first major figure to make this kind of scientific um, pilgrimage to the Pyrenees and to begin to identify it as a place of scientific interest and romantic interest as well. And then throughout the 19th century, you get this development of what they call Pyreneeism. And Pyreneeism is not like Alpinism. Alpinism is associated with kind of conquering um, iconic summits, you know, risking danger. But there's some of that in Pyreneeism. I mean, a lot of the early Pyreneeists were climbers. I mean, even though they took amateur to its furthest level. I mean, Carbonier's book is full of hair-raising descriptions of things that no one would dream of doing now, you know, one climbing up, up some ice-covered, slope it's just some tiny little ice axe no bigger than his hand in search of some flower this is the essence of pyrenaeism you know, there, there could be danger there could be hardship but that's not the whole point the point is the aesthetic appreciation of what's around you the variety of landscapes involved so you, you have the pastoral as well as the kind of um high rugged bare desolation that people associate with mountain landscapes from that you get a whole load of people throughout the 19th century basically walking in Raymond's footsteps. Almost all of them, Lord Russell, for example, the um, Irish-French count who uh, who fell in love with the mountain Vinmal, um, fell in love with it to the point that he actually asked his porters to bury him in it one night and leave him with just his face in the middle of a snowstorm. I mean, that's really bonding with the mountain. <laughs> and even then it wasn't enough because um, Russell decided he wanted to stay there. Um, so he got his um, his poor servants to go up to the top of Bin Mal and dig, uh, dig um, caves out of it, and they're still there, where he and his aristocratic friends would go and um, drink port or brandy or whatever. There'd be food there, and there'd be brandy for any traveler. And they'd sit up there, basically 
immersing themselves in the sublime. And so all of this comes from Raymond, really. You know, he was the first person to set that kind of tone. But you get lots of traveler, Russians, French, um, English. And would they all be reading each other, reading each other's books? Would this be, would they be in dialogue with previous travelers who have done this stuff? Absolutely, yeah. And, and all, all, very few of them don't know about Raymond. You know, um, his book was translated in about 1813, was translated into English, so it was known um, to, to English travelers as well. Bearing in mind, nearly all these people in the first wave of Pyrenaeism are, tend to be kind of quite well off, um, you know, because as, as so many travelers were in that time, because this was the time when you know, the, the Grand Tour, um, the Pyrenees was a bit of a deviation from the Grand Tour because it wasn't Italy. And so it was always a bit of a slightly kind of minority pursuit in, in, in comparison with, say, people crossing the Alps and going to Rome and so on. And this um, was a source of irritation to some of the travellers who fell in love with the Pyrenees, like Charles Pack, who was Lord Russell's companion. He was an Exetonian and lawyer who wrote the first, former lawyer, who wrote the first guidebook to the Pyrenees. And he used to express his frustration. Why don't people come here? Why do they always go to the Alps, he'd say. And he never really had any... No one could really understand why, you know, but the, um, the two mountain ranges have often been imagined very differently. This idea of the romantic, poetic Pyrenees and the kind of more rugged, danger-seeking, peak-summit-conquering Alpinist, quite distinct, really. Probably it's unfair, you know, because I think people who go to the Alps will also aesthetically appreciate the mountains. However, they're much higher. You know, so for every climber, the Alps is where you're going to go first, not the Pyrenees. So, does that distinction still hold true today? Do you think that the and are, do they attract a different type of person, a different type of traveler? To be honest, I don't know enough about the Alps to be able to say. Um, I suspect probably yes. You know, because I mean, I've known people. Um, a friend of mine, he once did this madcap climb of um, the Matterhorn, I think, when he was 17. Um, with his brothers, you know, this was a long time ago, but nevertheless, um, a rather insane idea. I can't even actually believe he survived it. People are more likely to go to the Alps for that kind of experience even now. I mean, there are, there aren't, um, there aren't any peaks in the Pyrenees that have the same iconic significance as something like the Matterhorn has, you know, and, um, even though there are peaks that can be climbed, there are serious climbs that you can do there. Not that I would do them. Um, part of the contradiction of my um, infatuation with mountains and Pyrenees is I don't like heights. Um, <laughs> I really don't like them. And uh, you never catch me climbing them because I absolutely have to. Um, when I did one of these walks in the Pyrenees, we did the Chemin de la Liberté, the Freedom Walk, um, which is a very hard route um, that one of the escape lines used to use coming out of Saint-Giron and going up Mont Valier. That was a very hard climb for me. And there were some bits in it. I remember one guy telling me, he said, very beginning he said you have to bear in mind he said in this war there are multitudinous ways to do yourself serious physical harm so i didn't particularly want to be i didn't particularly want to be told that at the beginning but i lived with it and he was right um but i think there's probably more ways to do yourself serious physical harm in the alps in a way another strange story i didn't know about speaking of some of these cultural um, connections was the role of the pyrenees as uh, kind of a mecca of cubism yeah that's an, uh, that's this is, you see, this is the fascination of the, of the Pyrenees that I didn't know that either when I started. And, you know, when I, um, I was amazed to know that the um, town of Serret in France, just on the other side of the, of the Catalan Pyrenees, or the French Catalan Pyrenees, 
um, was the place where Picasso and Georges Braque spent a few holidays in their Cubist period. And because of their journeys, I mean, Surrette is a lovely little place now, beautiful tree-lined town where you can kind of, a wonderful museum there um, created by the sculptor Frank Bertie de Havilland, who was a kind of um, contemporary of Picasso and Braque's. So it's a great place to go and spend um, a day in the museum and kind of moseying around the cafes and so on. And it's only a few miles from where all these Spanish refugees died trying to cross the border at La Jonquera. So that you, it's unusual to find a place like that there. You don't think of the savage frontier as a place to have an art museum. Nevertheless, yes, that's right. And Picasso and Brack went there, and other painters also spent time in and around Surette, like Soutine, Chaim Soutine, did these kind of crazed paintings um, kind of reflected of the mountains, but they're not not like Pyrenees that anybody's ever seen. They're more like mountains that he saw in a period of um, emotional turmoil. It's a very un, it's a very unusual and touching chapter of the Pyrenees, which I found really engaging. And you know, I I did actually think to myself when I was there, are there any other painters you know who followed this route? People like Picasso and Brack once took, you know. And I did find one. I found a, a painter called Ray Atkins, who was... Um, yes, that's an interesting it story. Great, yeah. it, was, it was an interesting tale for me because Ray, as I say in my book, Ray was in his 80s when I met him and he was suffering from macular degeneration. And he'd been... Um, he was one of these painters. He, was a, he, he worked with um, Frank Auerbach for many years in the 60s. And he was famous for doing these kind of um, giant paintings of things like the Millwall Docks or the Reading Gasworks, you know. And so what was he doing in the Pyrenees? He, in other words, he wasn't the kind of um, landscape painter who um, goes off to beautiful places. His philosophy was you find beauty in things that are not necessarily obviously beautiful. So he had to, he ended up going to the Pyrenees because he'd broken up, his because of a divorce in which he'd lost the barn where he stored all his paintings. He had hundreds of paintings, like two or three hundred, quite large canvases, some of them. And he had to keep them somewhere. So he moved to this farmhouse in the Pyrenees where the previous owner had committed suicide. And um, there he, he embarked on this totally new um, artistic journey, which I first came across purely by chance when I went to an exhibition of his in London. What was it called now? In the Forest or something like that. that anyway, what struck me about it was when people go to mountains, they usually paint the mountains. But Ray didn't. Ray painted forests, except that what was striking about his forests was they just blazed with colour. You know, uh, they're, they're kind of painted that think, oh, the next time I go into a forest, I need to look more carefully because all this is around me and I didn't even see it. You know, it's, I thought to myself, this is what painters can do. They can show you new ways of looking at things that you think you know. So I thought, well, I better get try and get in touch with him. So I visited him and I had a wonderful afternoon with him at his farmhouse. He was painting this amazing painting of his back garden. And I asked him why do you paint these things, you know? And he said that when he went to the Pyrenees, he didn't like this idea of being trapped by these kind of romantic landscapes. Um, he went on about Cezanne, you know, he said every time he'd look at the nearby mountain, he'd think, fuck Cezanne, he'd go, <laughs> you know, because um, I can't stop thinking about him. So he thought, I'm not going to bother looking at the mountain, I'm going to look at what's near me. Um, and that was the forest. And then because of his macular degeneration, he didn't have much choice because he increasingly couldn't see things in the distance. And so a lot of the colours that were appearing on his canvases were basically colours that he was imagining wow. from memory. 
And so I just thought this was an amazing thing, you know, and it was just a, showed me yet again that, you know, there's a very different, that a mountain range like the Pyrenees, aesthetically speaking, can be experienced in many different ways, you know. You can find these kind of gaunt, dramatic cliffs and bulls, as they call them, these kind of giant rounded cliffs like the one at Gavani. You can find that. You can find these desolate moonscapes that you expect to find in any mountain range if you go high enough. All that is there. And yet, within a day, you can find forests, the pastoral streams, meadows, and so on. And for me, you know, that means that the Pyrenees is a place you can endlessly go back to in any kind of situation for a hard walk, an easy walk, a holiday when you're 80, 90, as long as you can walk, you can get there somehow and you'll find something to take away with you. And what appeals to me too, is that you can walk through so many stories as well. Like you talked about some of the commemorative routes um, for, that, that map the wartime escape routes. And then there's also the um, Cathar Trail, which I think a lot of people, that's that's the Pyrenees legend I was most familiar with. Um, thanks to Lawrence Durrell's Avignon Quintet, the the Cathar Heresy. Why does that story in particular still captivate so many people today who go to this region? The Cathars have always been associated with a kind of um, quasi-mystical, always been subject to quasi-mystical fantasies, which have more to do with um, what people bring to them than the actual events that produced the destruction of the Cathars in the Middle Ages. So, you know, this is partly... Um, I say unfortunately, but then again, it's another kind of it's another way of seeing these mountains. Um, people like Dan Brown, books books about the Holy Grail, all this stuff about the cult, the the cult of the Grail, the idea that the French um, monarchy descends from Mary Magdalene, all this stuff that people like Dan Brown have developed is all centered in. Um, the French Pyrenees, in the lower in the foothills of the French Pyrenees. So you get people going there in order to kind of explore these places, in order to, to kind of see if, if this is real or not. And you know, in the 1930s, you have the curious case of Otto Rahn, the Nazi, a Nazi writer who was um, one of, for a while, was one of Himmler's favorite writers. Not that Himmler knew much about writers, um, and he went there in search of the Holy Grail. And he wrote a book that was basically a mishmash of mystical conspiratorial nonsense of the kind of which we have become depressingly familiar with in the 21st century once again because this stuff never really entirely goes away it just acquires new layers you know and he went and wrote this um, rather silly book which um the nazis liked so much they made him a member of the ss um as a reward for his intellectual achievements which were pretty minimal you know reading the reading the book is laughable really it's just a laughable lot of nonsense anyway people like that have given the uh, created a little um sort of subculture of conspiratorial mystical thinking about the Pyrenees, um, which reached a new chapter with the millennium when uh, the village what was the village called now Bugarak, um, for, for reasons out of nowhere, some people began to say put it out on the internet this village called Bugarak in the French Pyrenees was going to be the place where the world would end. And that some kind of creatures or aliens were going to come there and this would happen, you know. So lots of people started going there to wait for this, you know, wait for the millennium and the end of the world and so on. I mean, there were other places in the world where such things took place. This was the Pyrenean version. And it probably wouldn't have happened had it not been for Otto Rahn and for Dan Brown and all the others. So the villagers, they were quite smart. They thought, okay, all these people are coming here. We'll start making money out of it. So they started selling things like end of the world pizza. <laughs> uh, and stuff like that to these people. So 
in the end, they had to ban them from coming because there were so many people were going there. It was just overflowing the village. So I think about a couple of hundred journalists did go there and waited for the end of the world, which, as we are now attesting to, didn't happen. So, you know, there's that kind of thinking. I'm not sure if other mountain ranges have been subject to the same kind of thing. And it, the Cathars are intimately not responsible because nothing to do with them. Um, they're kind of bound up with that. And you also have the other dimension of the Cathars, which is there is an idea that um, the Cathars found the Pyrenees. I mean, Cathars crossed the Pyrenees to escape from the um, anti-Cathar crusade. There was that. And they did find shelter in Spain for a while. And for some time afterwards, it was believed by the Inquisition that the shepherds of the Pyrenees were actually Cathars, or at least they lived in a place that was out of their control. So there was a certain kind of suspicion of shepherd life in the Pyrenees based on that, the idea that they were enjoying some kind of religious liberty up there that um, was not permitted down below. I can see the appeal of the landscape and the the ruined castles and and all this stuff. It's an interesting hook to connect the um, the hiking route to that story. I'd like to do that maybe this winter. Hiking route that connects that seems quite appealing. But I think it was very appealing to me, you know, because in terms of um, the Pyrenees as a border, you constantly see signs of that wherever you go. You can find pillboxes um, built by Franco, you know, because for, for a while, um, just after World War Two, Spain thought it might be attacked, invaded by um, the Allies. Um, so that Franco had built this um, line of pillboxes from one end of the Pyrenees to the other, and you can find them still. You can find old watchtowers going back to the 8th century and beyond. You, constantly, you can find um, sniper towers, fortresses that were built, say, in the 16th century with a view, because bear in mind that France and Spain were fighting each other for many, many years, you know. So... Um, when um, when Louis the Fourteenth in um, 1659 said when Voltaire rather said following the Treaty of the Pyrenees in 1659 the Pyrenees no longer exist he meant um, that, that that because of this kind of marriage between um, the Spanish and the French royal family there would no longer be conflict between the two countries well that wasn't the case of course there were many many wars after that but you know the kind of um, the buildings and so on created during all these wars can still be found. You can find places in the Pyrenees where there's no sign, almost no sign of human ha habitation, but you won't go far without finding some sign of the history that is part of it. And the governments on both sides have kind of realised the touristic value of this. So the idea, in a way, that you're not just dealing with landscape per se, you give a historical value to landscape by creating these commemorative routes. And also there's a nationalist dimension to it. Um, in terms of, for example, Catalonia has been very um, kind of thorough about creating commemorative routes that commemorate, commemorate um, the Catalan role in the Spanish Civil War, for example. And so, you know, showing the ways that Catalans used to cross the Pyrenees and try and escape and so on is a way of highlighting the existence of Catalonia. So, you know, there are there are some of these some of these historical routes in the Pyrenees are connected with these smaller statelets or kind of um, nations inside nations, like the Basque Country, like Foix, like Béarn, that are also part of the Pyrenean history. So when you look at the, this is another part of the borderland complex, you think when you look at the Pyrenees, you're looking at the history of France and Spain. In fact, quickly find out you're looking at the history of all these 
statelets and principalities as well. And that gives a kind of an, an, another level of fascination to it. And it was one of the attractions of the mountains for 19th century travellers that they they felt very conscious of that. They would evoke um, people like Henri Quatre, the, the, the um, famous French king, who once said that every peasant should have a chicken to eat every Sunday and so on. And he and Henry the Henry Cat the Fourth was um, originally from Navarre and Bayern. So all these interlock histories are also part of what you can expect to find there. You know, and they, and they will explain some of the buildings that are there and so on and so forth. Yeah, this is very much still a cultural frontier today. It seems between the Basques and the Catalans. So was the Andorra was that uh, sort of the last remnant of these types of places that still remained a separate place? It was because Andorra had an unusual history because it was considered a co-principality. It was designated a co-principality. It was given special status apparently when in a, in the in the time of the supposed um, battle between Roland and the Saracens, when Charlemagne's armies retreated from Spain, withdrew from Spain. They, Charlemagne apparently gave Andorra a special concession, a kind of quasi-independence, um, if it resisted the Saracens. And that lasted for many centuries and still does to some extent. And in the 19th century, there was another substrand of Pyrenean history as you get this, um, American were very interested in this. American travelers were very interested in the idea of these mini republics that had somehow, um, escaped, you know, somehow survived within these larger nations, you know, and so you get American travelers specifically visiting Andorra and writing about it as this kind of um, lost land of freedom and independence of, you know, stalwart peasants who haven't submitted to kind of central government and so on and so forth. And some of them noted at the time it was a very Catholic place, Andorra, but now, and they, they praised the Andorran authorities for resisting attempts to set up gambling casinos there well that's gone now because i mean uh, a lot of people go to andorra specifically yeah. to gamble not to the mountains but to gamble you know wow there's so many great stories linked to this place so thank you very much matt for taking us on this whirlwind tour of a region of europe that i'm very interested in and keen to explore further so the book you've written about it is called savage frontier and it's a fantastic read highly recommended thank you very much it's been, uh, been an absolute pleasure thanks for listening to this episode of personal landscapes if you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on books about place at ryanmurdoch.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated. <laughs>